Please turn in your Bibles to First uh, Peter. I'll read just two verses there, and then we'll move on. Then I'd like to introduce our discussion this morning by a, a story. First <clears throat> Peter chapter two. It reads, verse five: You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Through Jesus Christ. In verse 9, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that's also used in Titus, I might add, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but now, but are now a people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Beloved, I beg you. As sojourners and pilgrims abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Um, I don't think I've shared this publicly, but to introduce where, where we left off yesterday in today's discussion, we had a, a family gathering. And you understand that uh, my wife, she has um, three sisters, and they have at least four children apiece. And, and um, my family and my brother married my wife's sister, so we're really close, really close. And so... Uh, you know, there's, I don't know, 25 grand, uh, cousins, whatever it is, and adults. So if you come to my house for Thanksgiving, if you don't come to eat, you don't eat. And so it's just very busy. And, you know, I, I have to confess, uh, I'm a very practically oriented, into, oriented individual. And if I see uh, 20 young people sitting around eating turkey, I want them to go rake leaves at the chapel. And so that's what we did. And so I, I bribed them, of course, and, and I took them over to the chapel. And, and we're raking leaves this day. And and, uh, and they're a very wonderful spirit and wanting to do the right thing and help. And, and uh, as they're raking this plot of ground 20 by 40, the leaves were about a foot and a half to two foot deep. And, and I'm out by the road and they're in by the building. It's about a distance of 100 yards. And, and I see the work for stop, which always bothers me, you see. And so I went in and I said, uh, what's, what's the problem? And, and they're very concerned, all the young people. And they say, well, Livy, or, or her name is Olivia, we call her Livy. Livy uh, lost her promise ring, and it's in there. And I look at this 20 by 40, two foot deep of leaves, thinking, kiss it goodbye. And I'm tr quickly trying to think how I'm going to console the young person and Olivia and, and all the people and get, us, get the job done, you know. And, and um, as I'm contemplating those thoughts, my son, they're all taller than me, but he leans over like he's God leaning in my ear. And he says, Dad, maybe we should pray about it. You know, young people, we should probably pray about this. He acted so spiritual, I was dry as a bone. And he said, and I said, in fact, Thomas, why don't you lead us in prayer? What a farce, right? And I watched this man lead all 20 of us before the living God about a ring somewhere in a two-foot pile of 20 by 40 leaves. And he asked the Lord to find the ring. 
And so I, being the practical gentleman that I am, said, you know, young people, why don't we do this? We'll keep raking and we'll look at the same time. I got that from Nehemiah, one hand on the wall, one hand with the weapon, you see. And so, I, so we all get back to work. And now, as providence would happen, I have to go out by the road and finish my job. And as if the Lord is saying, if you don't want to believe me in prayer, you go out by yourself and mind your own business. And 20 minutes later, all the young people quit working again. Great. So I walk back up there. And this time, they're jumping up and down. And little Livy comes up with that teeny little ring, points it in my nose. We found it. <laughs> that was the day the Lord and I visited the woodshed. I came back a little different. You see, one of the things that a priest does in the New Testament is he leads. And you don't have to be a crotchety, doubting, older father to lead. You can be an 18-year-old, 19-year-old man that gives a direction for the hour. And what we're going to do is we're going to finish or pick up where we left off and, and some of the positive activity of the priest as based on the Levitical order. And then we're going to end, and, and it's going to be a little difficult journey because we're going to end with some of the indictments uh, that the priests uh, against the Levitical order that they didn't do. We're going to look at some of the things that the Lord had to say of a negative fashion. And uh, hopefully we'll finish uh, on time. Gary, that was for you. Okay. <laughs> so let's turn, uh, or excuse me, uh, and so yesterday we left off with this idea of the priest handled the sacrifices. Remember that? We started with Melchizedek, and I talked a little bit about the Lord Jesus and how he provided the Word of God, just the right word for just the right moment at just the right trial. And, and then we moved over to the Levitical priests and how they handled the sacrifices. And you had to know a lot of data, right? You had to know the sacrifices, uh, each one, and their, their nuances and, and portions that would be divided between those who participated in some of the food of that sacrifice and the ones that did not, the one that did not. And then you would have to know uh, 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 how it was cooked, and, and you had to know the right proportions and, of oil and, and grain, and, and you had to, to know about the morning and evening sacrifices, and you had to know timing and and you had to know things about, um, which we'll cover today, some of the cleansing of the leper, which was different than anything else with the birds that would be, the bird that would be sacrificed, the day of Yom Kippur, a very complicated, uh, kind of complex and, and drawn out system. And so you really needed to know what you were doing. A little breach of protocol could mean your death. That's how serious this was. And so um, when we come to the New Testament, it says that we offer up holy or uh, spiritual sacrifices to the Lord, and we better make sure we know what we're doing too. That's the point. We better, better make sure that we are uh, um, uh, current on our understanding. And so I began to just do a little bit of, of perusal of some of these things that might be important. And one of those things was in Matthew chapter 5. If you remember, when you come to the altar and you, and you remember, you have a a gift and you remember that your brother has something against you, then he's saying, listen, the protocol states that you go, and as much as it be possible, that's in another portion of the Word of God, you, you be at peace with all men, and, you, and you, you, try to, you get that thing resolved. And I would suggest to us that that's actually the last thing we do, if we ever do. 
And that's not a compliment to the people of God. That would be an indictment. And so we, we ended there. There is another portion, and that you can turn to Matthew chapter 6, another element of how to handle spiritual sacrifices. I'll just read it to you. Uh, chapter 6 and verse 1 in Matthew, it says, Take heed that you do not do your charitable, charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound the trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. In fact, it goes on later to say, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Now, I don't mean, I think what he's obviously saying is when it comes to handling spiritual sacrifices, there is an element here that it should not, that, that there is an important principle here that it should not be tainted by the flesh of recognition, right? Now, I, I, I know how this works. I, I, I'm a, you may not know this, but I'm a man and, and men have responsibility to share in the breaking of bread especially when I was younger and sometimes even when you're older. Sometimes you say things wanting to know if anybody thought you sounded good. Anybody ever do that? Thank you, William. Thank you. Such an honest man. We did not plan that out, by the way. I'll pay you later. 20 minutes. (laughs) 20 minutes, yes. Whenever we travel in the car, William says, how much longer? My standard answer is 20. Parents write this down. 20 minutes. I said, you said that last time because it's been 20 minutes since last time. So he was telling me 20 minutes for a meeting to be over. (laughs) So the point is, is that there's a real sense of not necessarily, I I don't want to call it secretiveness or or being so uh, coy about it. But the point is, is that you're not trying to taint the the handling of spiritual sacrifices with self-recognition, with self-announcement, with self-proclamation. That's one of the things we do as New Testament preach. That's a given. That's a protocol. That's an order. Well, there's some other things that are said in the New Testament. I mentioned about prayer. Prayer is certainly a, a portion of making spiritual sacrifices. And the thing that he said in 1 Timothy was that it needs to be without doubt and without wrath. There needs to be a purity of heart and a trusting of soul, a full persuasion of being and the goodness and the wholesomeness and the ability of God to hear and answer and, and, and respond. And so there's a real importance of that when it comes to being uh, handling the spiritual sacrifices of prayer. And of course, there's uh, a few other things. Uh, for example, in Luke 21, do you remember the story of the widow? And the widow comes up, and the, it's, really, it's really kind of interesting. It's as if the boys are resting, you know, the, you know, the disciples. And, and they're all kind of resting, and they're all sort of staring out in space. I notice that at the, at, with my young people, they do that once in a while, just stare out in space. I say, what are you thinking about? I don't know. And so they're all kind of, I don't know, and, and they're watching this little widow come up. I can just see it happen, you know, kind of. And, you know, and they watch, you know, the, the, the hand that's, 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 that's bony and, and drops and king, 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 you know. And I used to watch them do this in Japan when they put money in the Buddhist temple and just drop down there. And the Lord Jesus watching it with the boys says, hmm, just almost like, like, you know, one of these wise people. Yeah, she's put in more than anybody else today. I'm, if I'm one of the disciples, I'm going, huh? What are you talking about? We could hear the exact amount that, that jingled in the box. 
And of course, it was said in the backdrop of somebody who probably just came in and dumped in the whole, the whole pocket full, you know. And the Lord's saying, you know, she gave out of all that she had. They just gave out of their excess. When we handle spiritual sacrifices before God, what he's saying there is this, that it means so much more to him if it's a sacrifice that actually cuts deep for your soul. It cuts deep for you. That means more to me than it is if you just gave the spare change, even if the spare change is a lot. That's what he's saying. Handling spiritual sacrifices. This is how we are to think. This is how we are to go about handling spiritual sacrifices that we offer up to heaven. Now, there's another type. There, there's not only the, the handling, but there's certain types of sacrifices in the New Testament. One of them is in Romans chapter 12, and it says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices. One time, I was... Uh, I, I was conversing with the late Bill McDonald, and he, he was telling me, he said, I try to start every day, maybe you've heard this, every day as a living sacrifice. He said, I pretend my bed is my altar, and I get on my knees and I ask the Lord, or I say to the Lord, Lord, today I am your living sacrifice, and this bed is your altar. I never forgot that. Actually, I tried to do that this morning. And so as, the chill, as my, boat, my men were sleeping, I was awake and I was praying, Lord, I want to be your living sacrifice today. I'm going to lay myself on the altar. And I did. And I fell back asleep. Anyway, and so as I, I was doing that, I, I got up, I showered, and we were to have breakfast with the Stratman family at, at the Iwani Hotel. I actually forgot it was at the Iwani Hotel, and, and I couldn't contact the Stratmans, but I just knew that we needed to get there. So, so we, we, I got up my boys, and we got on the bus, and the guy, I said, now, this will take me there. Yeah, yeah, we just have a quick loop around Upper Pines, and 45 minutes later, we make it to, and I, and I knew they were staying at the, um, at the Yosemite Lodge, and so I go up to the front desk, and I say, hey, I'm looking for the Stratmans. We call, I think we wake up Jody or something, and, and they say, oh, they're at the Iwani. Well, that's like the other way. So we go back out to the bus stop, and you know what we're doing? We're waiting. Now look at me. I'm an emergency medicine doctor. Do I look like I wait to you? I don't wait, you see. I either act or I go to sleep. I don't do anything in the middle, Right? And I'm waiting, and I, I'm just, I, and I know I'm portraying such a terrible disposition before the Lord, and I have to say, I'm just going to walk over here. Guys, you stay right there, and I'm walking down, and I'm praying. Lord, this is not my idea what I had in mind this morning, and then, and then it came to me. Well, I thought you said you wanted to be a living sacrifice. Not now! <laughs> and I just, just, and he said, you know, you, you gave me your body. I know, but can't we give my body on the bus? Now listen, I, I, I quote to you this in a humorous way, but how many of us have not experienced that, right? Moment by moment surrender of where we're at and, and the process of what's going on when the world is crashing around you. See, that's part of being a living sacrifice. That's how the New Testament priest is to be thinking. This is exactly the default mindset that is supposed to be a hard a, a portion of every person's spiritual DNA. This is how we're supposed to go about it. And, you know, if you don't, you end up struggling. And you know what that means? You can feel it boiling in you. You know, you can feel it. And little poor William asked me, a question. Shh, I'm thinking. 
Actually, I was cover words for I'm really under great conviction, you see. And I remember that. That was all this morning, living sacrifice. There's other kinds of living sacrifices. You, you may turn to Hebrews 13 to see a few, and I'll try to move this on very quickly. Hebrews chapter 13. <coughs> Excuse me. If we look at uh, verse 16, you can see it there. I'll read verse 15. Let, Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise. In other words, there's an element of our existence in which God wants your adoration. And it's not because God is sort of an uh, egotistical individual that needs all this sort of praise chips put into the coins of heaven. It's really because that's God's rightful place. That's the way it should be. That's the way it's supposed to be. Satan turned it over. God is writing the situation. And appropriate praise is to be there. Now, it's not praise that happens because we have to. You know, okay, we're going to go sing to God. Let's try. No, it's because you want to. It's because the filling of the Spirit, the yielding to the Spirit, and the Word of God has so permeated the porous nature of our souls that it just comes out in, in adoration and praise. Now, it's easier to do in a setting like this, but it's really hard to do when you have a flat tire. See, one day we were at Ozark Family Camp. I have many stories about Ozark Family Camp. That's where Fred and Sue are, are, uh, serve there. And, and we're driving back from Ozark Family Camp, and I'm in my 15-passenger minivan. There's no such thing as a 15-passenger minivan. That was a play on words. Stay with me, please. And so as we're driving back, I, I, I notice that the van is going, kunk, 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 and I pull over like any good father would do. And I, like, like my brother uh, Keith, uh, mechanically things there's, is just ch- challenging, would you say? Yes. And so I get out and I look at the tire. Of course, what am I looking at? A flat tire. And I've never changed a tire on this particular vehicle before, and I can't find the spare. Turns out they tucked it underneath. And I have to have this tool, and I have to crank it down. And so I finally find everything, and it's stinking hot in Missouri, like 103 in the shade. I empty out the van. All the kids are on the grass. Janet's there doing the thing, you know, fanning them dry. And I'm going, and I get the thing off. I come over. I jack up the van. It weighs 4,000 pounds. We get it up high, and I do the lug nuts, you know. Of course, all the kids are watching, so I'm going, you know really trying to show the guns, which are hard to see. And so I get, I get the lug nuts off, and I, I, go, I go to the tire. Now my wife's watching. <laughs> I can't get the stinking tire off the, the, the well. About that time, I hear this, this car pull up behind me. Sacrifices of praise, right? These two guys get out. They have no shirts on, but they're covered in ink from here to here, up to here. And I'm thinking, sacrifice of praise. I think I'm just going to be the sacrifice. <laughs> the guy comes over, you know, he's got the big chain hanging down, you know, motorcycle gangish kind of thing, the jeans and the huge boots that look like they could kill anything. Walks up like this. What well, seems to be the problem? Okay. I'm down on the ground. All my grasshopperness is really small. And I said, well, the tire seems to be stuck. Well, let me take a look at it. And then he looks at me. I stand up. I come up to his, to his navel. And he looks down at me and says, you don't have enough hate in you. Whack! And he kicks that tire off in one move. Those two angelic, ink-laden people 
change my tire in 30 seconds and put the new one back on, and they're off and driving away. And I got in the car, so sacrifice and praise. Lord, I thought I was going to be just sacrificed, and now I can praise. You see, that's part of it, isn't it? I tell you that story because it has nothing to do with No, I tell you that story because you remember sacrifice of praise, sacrifice of thanksgiving. You know, that's in the psalm, Psalm 107. And, and 116, the sacrifice of thanks. You know what thanksgiving does to you? It actually is an element of surrender. You don't really become thankful for that which is occurring around you unless you've surrendered to the God who is doing things around you, right? Thanksgiving is an expression of absolute surrender. And of course, then lastly, in this passage, verse 16, and do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. That is that, that's that Christianity, that priesthood in action. John said it this way. If you meet with your brother and say, oh, the Lord bless you. You have a good time and your brother has a need. He says, listen, we need to love in word and deed or in, in action and not only word and deed. And this is what this, this writer of Hebrews is saying. A good priest of God, a good soldier is actually active. I don't know if we realize this, but in order for the New Testament body to grow, to actually be a functioning uh, uh, body, uh, spiritual body that is consistent with the size of the head, then every joint and sinew, that's all of us, have to be working at maximum capacity. Where is that at? Ephesians chapter 4. In other words, if you want to see the body grow, then all of us have to take this thing about priesthood very seriously, and we have to put our hand, as it were, to the plow. If we don't do that, then you're going to come up with some some disabilities in the body of Christ. You're going to come with some atrophy of some of the limbs or digits of the body of Christ. Everyone participates. There are no non-combatants in the army of God. Everybody is in. If you can't shoot the bullets, you carry the bullets, right? That's the whole idea. And so he says, and so in no uncertain terms, the sacrifices of God have to deal with good and sharing and looking out, as, as the Philippians says, as Philippians says, looking for those needs around you, being a scout for those needs, and thinking of others more important than yourself. That means you value them with greater esteem than you, as the Lord Jesus had treated you and I. That's the idea. All right, now there's other things that the priest did in the Old Testament. I'd like you to turn to the book of Leviticus chapter 13. Leviticus chapter 13. I'd like to to point our attention to a specific verse, and let's read for the sake of discussion in verse 18. Leviticus chapter 13 and verse 18. Now I want you to read it carefully because if you read this, you'll be like it would be as if you're reading a chapter out of Rosen's uh, Emergency Medicine, which is considered the Bible for emergency medicine, and it goes like this: If a body develops a, bo- a boil in the skin and it is healed, and in the place of the boil there comes a white swelling or a bright spot, reddish white, then it shall be shown to the priest. Okay, what do you do with it? And then when, and if, when the priest sees it, it indeed appears deeper than the skin, and its hair is turned white, the priest shall pronounce him unclean. It is a leprous sore which has broken out of the boil. I'm only taking that paragraph for a particular reason. Why is that? How the priest is involved in physical diagnosis. The priest is involved in medical care. And the the text, the medical text of Leviticus 13 is telling them, now you look for this color, you look for this texture, you look for this kind of appearance, and if that's there, boom, you have the diagnosis. 
Priests are involved in diagnosis in this day of a very serious disease of leprosy. Today, people are not sure if it was the ancient disease, but today it is, uh, uh, they think it's caused by an organism similar to the tuberculosis organism called Mycobacterium leprosi. I always love that word. I always got that right on the exams. Mycobacterium leprosi, very similar to uh, tuberculosis, except this is a skin manifestation. You can get skin manifestations of tuberculosis disease also. And yet, what he's doing is he's, he's charged to not only make the diagnosis when it clears up later in the passage, he's charged to be the one that declares if it's really clean. You see, there's something unique about the New Testament priests. If there's anybody that should be able to diagnose the sin problem, it should be you and I, right? Now, how, how, why can I say that? Because when you've been saved from the, from the penalty and power and eventually the presence of sin, you have a unique ability to call it as it is. The problem is, is that when we as priests, if we compromise and continue to live in the deceitfulness of sin, then our abilities to diagnose the issue become extremely skewed. Take Saul, for example. Saul lived in a tremendous sway of jealousy. He, he was jealous of David. It drove him, really, eventually to his death. And when Saul was dealing with Agag, which it was interesting that was in the, his name was in the text today, uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 15, God gave him a clear instruction. Now, I want you to go to Agag and the Amalekites and wipe them all out. Don't save anybody. And what Saul did was the exact opposite. He saved, he saved Agag's life, which is like heading, saving the head of state to show everybody you're ruling over him. And you saved the best of the booty, meaning you saved all the good stuff. And that are two things that are done by the victorious king. God said, don't do that. And what he did next is he went to a place called Carmel, which is the home of Nabal and, and uh, Abigail. And he puts up a, a nice statue of himself, you know, like firepower or something like that. And so... He then goes over to Gilgal, and in Gilgal, as would be, the man of God, Samuel, shows up. And the first thing Saul says is like he's convincing himself. I've obeyed the voice of the Lord. Yes, I have. Here. Ugh, feels so good. Samuel says, are you stupid? Now, that's a, I added that in the text. It's a loose interpretation. It's not even in the ESV. It's in the SDP. Okay? And... He says, what is the deal with the sheep in the background? And then Samuel says a bunch of things. And then Saul actually says, and I I do it this way because I I see it this way. I did obey the voice of the Lord. I did, I did, I did. What is wrong with you? How can you say that you obeyed the voice of the Lord when the evidence of your disobedience is literally sitting right over there? Agag going, (laughs) You see what happens when, when, the, when we get deceit, or when we fall into the deceitfulness of sin, we can't make a diagnosis. I had a guy come into my ER. He was from Texas. You know how I know that? He had a belt buckle that said Texas on it. He had the cowboy boots, came walking in. Doctor? He's in bed, I'll never forget, he's in bed 13. Can I usually know him? I need a pill. That's what he said to me. I need a pill, doctor. Give me a pill, doctor. I said, and you know, when somebody from Texas starts talking like that, you start talking like that. And I go, you need a pill. <clears throat> Excuse me. You need a pill? What do you need a pill for? Well, see, this is my girlfriend, and we've been going over to that Baptist church over there, and that pastor said I need to marry her and quit living with her. 
And I'll tell you, that really bothers me. And I need a pill. Can you give me a pill? I said, you don't need a pill. You need the Word of God. And I gave him John 3.16 on the prescription. And then I gave him some Xanax because he was really way out there. <laughs> See, the issue that the New Testament priest must deal with is the, is the issue of sin. And, and so many times I have people will come to me on a marital problem, and they're not after marital solutions. They're after confirmation of their predetermined conclusions so that they can be justified to move forward with a decision they've already made. You know what we call that? Deceitfulness of sin. Deceitfulness of sin. So many times I have people come to me and say, uh, you know, there's a problem, and here's the problem in our church. And, and they'll describe it, and when they describe it at the core, sometimes it's a definite assault against the whole idea of headship. I've seen this. I, I, I see it a lot. I hear it a lot. I have family members that, that are under this guise of, of this disguise of the deceitfulness of sin. If there's anybody that should really have a pulse on this thing, it should be the New Testament priest. And yet our ability to be a diagnostician, to, be a, a thera- to provide therapeutic intervention, spiritually speaking, is compromised because we've compromised ourselves. Saints, this is unacceptable. This is not the charter of the New Testament priest. Not at all. We should be experts at leprosy, should we not? Yes, we should. All right, let's move on. They not only handled leprosy, they handled the diagnosis of leprosy, they handled the cleansing part. And if you remember, it's in chapter 14 that they would be involved with cleansing the house and all that was happened. They would be involved in cleansing the leper when they were clean and the ceremony involved. And you remember, it's somewhat similar to the, the uh, 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 principles of Yom Kippur with the two goats, you know, and one live, one dies. Well, here you take the two birds, one dies, its blood is shed over the cedar wood and the running water, and you take that blood and you dip it on the, the leper who's cleansed and you dip it in the bird that's clean and you let the clean bird go away. See, that sounds like Yom Kippur, right? Two in the opposite directions. One dies, one lives. One has freedom, one doesn't. And he's saying, that, and the whole principle is there again. Just like the Lord Jesus, he's, he, you take two things to illustrate one truth and one person that he dies and he lets you go free and your sin goes away. Like your leprosy is now gone, never to return. That's what we do. We're, in, we're involved with that. We're involved with the solution of sin. We're involved with articulating it. One day this lady, this girl, it was a night shift. I hate night shifts. Any of you got, any, anybody work night shifts? I, if God wanted us to be at night, uh, be, to be up at night, he'd have us sleep upside down or, or standing up. I don't know. It's just something's wrong with night shifts. And I hate them. My wife says I have PNS syndrome, pre-night shift syndrome. And I get grouchy, I get grumpy, I get irritable, I get hungry, and I'm just all together. They don't make me work them anymore. They say you're too grouchy. It's not a good testimony, but I accepted it. Anyway, I'm going in on this night shift, and my wife, she's such a godly woman, she says, now here, honey, here's some chocolate chip cookies. <laughs> oh, thank you, vitamin C. Uh, chocolate chip cookies for you tonight. And I want you to know, as she smiled in her very gracious way, I've prayed that every patient will be a divine appointment. What'd you do that for? I was so happy to be miserable. I can't give me those cookies. Go to the hospital. First patient I see, she had cut her wrists. In emergency medicine, when somebody does something of that nature, it's about a four-hour task to solve. Where's Sharon? Sharon, are you here? Sharon. 
You know what I'm saying? Yes, you know, thank you. Only emergency medicine guys, we know what we're talking about on this one. Four hours, right? And I sit down and I'm going to stitch her and I'm so I'm so self-centered and, and upset and, and wishing I didn't have to be on this night shift and it's that the Spirit of God tapped me on the shoulder. Tell her the truth. Tell her the truth. No, I'm too mad. Tell her that I'm the almost missionary like Jonah, you know. I tell her the truth. No, no. Fine, I say, okay already. I'll tell her the truth. And so I said to her, I'm, I'm stitching up her wrist. She can't move. I can't leave. So, I, I mean, a captive audience. I said, what would you say? If I could give you something tonight that is better than any counselor you've ever seen. She immediately perks up. I'd already looked at her chart. She was on 10 medications. I said, what would you say if I could give you something tonight that would surpass any of those 10 medications you're taking? She goes, what is that? Tell me what it is. Tell me. I said, what would you say if I shut up and tell me the answer? I said, well, let me tell you something. And I gave her the truth about the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel. You see, that's what we are. We are involved in the process of what it takes, if I may, to cleanse the leper. And that ceremony the priest did, will we give the solution? Oh, let us not be reluctant givers of the truth of God's word. All right, let's move on. We've got a lot of ground to cover. We've only just begun. Gary, keep that in mind. Okay. Thank you, brother. Thank you. All right. What did he say? I missed that. What did you, what did you utter under your breath? All right. I'm going to mention two more things, and, and you, you again, time is, is difficult for me, but I want you to know that I misspoke on the first night. It wasn't the Marites that carried the ark. It was the Kohathites, and that was a slip of my, my failing memory. The Kohathites were charged to carry the furniture of God, and it says uh, you, you're to handle the holy things of God personally, right? And the other tribes had ox and carton, given ox and carts, Ox and carts given to them by the rulers. But the Kohathites, they, they had to carry the furniture, the ark and the covenant and all that on their shoulders with, you know, with their hands is the idea. As if the, God is saying, the, the things that are most important I want you to handle personally. And so the Kohathites were involved in that work. Now, there are two occasions in the Old Testament record where the Kohathites didn't carry the ark. And one of them is when they crossed the River Jordan. You remember that story? You walk out and when their feet touch, the water on the upstream mounds up and the water on the downstream flows down. You walk on dry ground. The priests go to the middle of the River Jordan and they're holding the ark high and the 603,000 men go walking by. That was what would happen that day. It's a very unique thing. You're supposed to take some stones out of the middle of the, of the river and make a, a, a monument on the other side and actually build a monument in the river. And so here they are. The priests are holding up the ark, right? Now, very unusual. They didn't do this normally. The Kohathite, the cousins did that. But these guys, the priests, the Aaron's, Aaron's family, they were doing that. Now, if you were a soldier that day, and you were walking by, you would see the gold and the reflection of the sun off that gold box every step of the way, almost blinding you. And this is exactly something the priests do in the New Testament. When we are going across the river, when we are going to that new land, if I, if I may, to conquer, if we're going into that new venture that God is leading, what do we do as priests? What do the elders do? We hold Christ high, right? Now, there's another time. It was when they went to Jericho. I read that one. 
while they're in Jericho. They were in the center of the army with Christ on their shoulders as if to say, I'm in the center of my troops. I'm with you all the way. And they do that unusual, really suicidal battle plan where they could actually have the entire army numbered and give seven days for the enemy to strategize how to defeat them. And of course, on that seventh day, that seventh time, they blow the trumpets and the walls and, you know, Veggie Tales actually got that part right, you know. The point is this. The priests were involved with those two exploits, crossing into the new land and the first inaugural battle of the land. That's exactly what we do in, this, in the world we call the assemblies. We want to hold Christ as high as possible, whether it's going forward or whether it's in the middle of the battle. And I want to give a practical suggestion here. When you're in that heat of the battle and people don't agree, and there's strong opinions on both sides. I want, to, I want to just suggest to you that a neutralizing question which holds Christ high, as we should do, is this question. Are you ready? What will glorify the Lord Jesus Christ the most? Not a little bit. I am not after a little bit of glory for the Savior. I am after glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ the most. You, you young folks that are married or getting married. Why don't you ask that question about your wedding? Why don't you ask that question about the house that you're going to buy? Why don't you ask that question about the car that you may purchase or the job that you will take? What will glorify the Lord Jesus Christ the most with my little plot of ground, with my little weapons in my hand, with my little territory of jurisdiction? How can I glorify the Lord Jesus Christ the most in the raising of my children? And you know what happens? It's no longer about my opinion or your opinion. It's now about the Savior's opinion. And suddenly all sort of bickering gets what? Neutralized. There's nothing more important than that in an elders meeting. Because I'll tell you, one thing I've noticed about we elders, we're strongly opinionated. I don't know if you know that. At least I am. And, and you know, the problem is, is that when we, when we come together, sometimes it's our opinions that dominate and not the glory of God. And when that happens in an elders meeting, that permeates to the rest of the meeting. And we want to be an assembly. We want to be local gatherings of New Testament uh, churches that actually seeks one thing. And it, we, we put it on our walls in all things and he might have preeminence. This is how it's done. What would glorify the Lord Jesus Christ the most? Right? Okay, we have other things to talk about. Let's move on. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. I'd like to take some consideration to Ezra. Turn to Ezra chapter 8. Ezra, as you know, was a priest of God, and he was involved in the uh, return to Israel, and he was instrumental along with Zerubbabel as well as Nehemiah. Now, Ezra's portion in, in this particular section of history is really impressive. The way he leads as a priest of God is very telling to me. You remember that he had asked permission to go back, and the king of that age was very uh, amendable to the return. And so Ezra had the ear of the king, and so he makes a request. And we have a little bit of that history given to us in Ezra chapter 8, <coughs> excuse me, and verse 21. Let me just take a drink of water here real quick. Okay, there we go. Ezra eight twenty-one. Ezra speaking, Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek him for, for to seek from him the right way for us and our little ones and all our possessions. 
Does that sound, the, sound like the exact opposite of what was going on in Numbers? The exact opposite disposition is being echoed. For I was ashamed to request of the king an escort of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemies on the road. And by the way, it was notorious to be robbed on this road that went from where he was over to the land of Canaan, right? It was notorious. And so it says this, the enemies on the road, because we had spoken to the king saying, the, Lord, the hand of the Lord God is upon all those who, for good to see, who seek him, but his power and his wrath are against all those who forsake him. In other words, Ezra's saying, all right, guys, come in, come in. We need to have a chat. In our family, we call it the family meeting. It's a big meeting, right? And we all come in and I say, listen, I have boasted to the unsaved man that God takes care of his kids. And we're about to go on a long journey. And what we're going to need to do here, this is the, Ezra, the priest talking, is we're going to have to take some time and anguish our souls so that we can talk to our heavenly father to provide us the protection because I'm ashamed to tell the, ask the king for physical protection when I boasted about the protection of God. Don't you love that? Don't you love the leading of that priest? Wouldn't it, would it be fantastic if we as elders would do that? Saints, We have a problem in our assembly. I don't know if you've noticed this, but we haven't seen a soul saved in 10 years. Saints, I don't know if you know this, but we haven't seen a soul baptized here in 15 years. And whether we like it or not, that is not the normal pattern of a New Testament church. And so let's come in here. Let's come on in and let's spend some time. And if you choose to fast, you do it as unto the Lord and you do it privately, but let's come together and let's ask our God to change us. That's what we need. Oh, that I, I tell you, brethren, sisters, that's a New Testament priest, right? Now, it's not, this is not the only time Ezra did this. Flip over one chapter. Flip over to chapter 9. The, the scenario's changed. They're in the land now, and, and there, it comes to light that there was some intermarriaging going, intermarriages going on, and, and it was really prominent among certain echelon of the uh, of the ranks, and Ezra hears about it. Let's, let's just read it. Verse 1. <clears throat> and when these, when these things were done, the leaders came to me saying, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the land with respect to the abomination of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Pezzarites, and the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites, for they have taken some of the daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, so that the holy seed is mixed with the people of those lands. You see the necessity of separation. Indeed, the hand of the leaders and rulers has been foremost in this trespass. So when I heard this thing, notice Ezra, the priest, I tore my clothes. Was it because he was hot? No, it was because he was broken. I tore my garment and my robe and plucked out some of the hair of my head and the beard, and I sat down astonished. Notice this. Then everyone who trembled at the words of God. You know that word trembles is the same word used in Isaiah 66 and verse 4 when he says, the one place place I want to dwell in all of the universe is not in heaven and is not on earth, or not on earth is my footstool, but I'm looking for something. I'm looking for those who are contrite in heart and those who tremble at my word. Same word. Those who quake. That is, when the word of God is spoken, I actually react. That's what's important here. 
And so he says, those who trembles at my word, the words of God of Israel, symbol to me. And what does he do? At the evening sacrifice in verse 5, I rose from my fasting, having torn my garment and my robe, and I fell on my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord God of Israel. Have you been in a prayer meeting lately where one of the brothers gets up and says, God, we are undone. I don't know how it happened, Lord, but I don't love you like I, lo- I, I, I love my wife. I love my children more than I love you. God, I don't know what's happened to my soul, but I actually love these things more than I love you. And oh God, I don't know if you could ever change me, but I beg of you to change me. Have you heard that recently? God, we've come to this meeting for so, t- so long, Father God, and, and, and we think we're rich and that we have, we have fruit and we have, we have uh, a health, but really we're wretched, we're poor, we're miserable, blind and naked, and we need the eye salve of heaven. You see, those broken moments are very precious to the being of God. Priests, it's what we do. We're sensitive to the word of God. We respond to the word of God. All right, we need to move on. We need to look at Malachi. (laughs) I've lost my watch, Gary. I'm so sorry. Oh, here it is. (laughs) Ah, okay, Malachi. (laughs) I promise one thing out of Malachi. In Malachi chapter 1, There's a lot said to the priests. He says, in what way have we defiled you? Verse uh, verse 7 of chapter 1. By saying the table of the Lord is contemptible. When you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Offer Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept favorably, says the Lord of hosts? See what he's saying? Now I've changed from some positive things to negative things. And in Malachi, we have a lot of indictments given. And this one, the the priest is is, is giving the seconds, the leftovers, the discardable. Oh, we do that, don't we? Oh, we do that so easily. Lord, I haven't been in your word for the last two months, but here I am. And I think I could say something that I thought about four months ago. What are you doing? What are you doing? That what, look at what it says. Offer it to your governor. Would he be happy for the leftovers of your soul? Lord, I'm so sorry. I, 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 I didn't mean to stay up till 3 a.m. I just did. And now I'm too sleepy to stay awake. Oh, God, thank you for dying for my sins through Jesus Christ. Right? Is that how it's supposed to be for us? No. No. The New Testament priest is not to have that kind of compromise. Let me see if I can end with this last one here. Verse 13. You say also, Oh, what a weariness! Oh, what a weariness! And you sneer at it, says the host. Oh, what a weariness it is! I was telling a group of people about our Sunday morning. Sunday morning for families, at least our family, is the hardest day of the week. Yeah, when we had all nine children in the house, it was basically run like a military barracks. Blue team, move out, move out. Red team, where are you? Where are your shoes? How come you have a red sock on and a green sock on? What do you want to be a stoplight? Who's in charge of this one? Right? Yeah. Are you listening? (laughs) Right? That's how it was. 
And, I, I, and then husbands, write this part down. And if you're going to get married, write it down twice. I made the terrible mistake of going over to Mrs. Wonderful saying, excuse me, uh, how long do you think you'll be? <laughs> yeah. You know what we call that? Dumb dumb. <laughs> really? Dumb dumb. I said, how long? And she gave me the look of the wife. And I left, and I recognized that perhaps I stepped on the only nerve that was still surviving. We get into our 15-passenger minivan, and we're driving to the chapel at, I might add, just a few minutes over the speed limit. And we got people crying, and we got somebody over here who's just kind of wondering why Dad's so, so tense, and Mom's a little bit upset with Dad, and Dad's a little bit upset with Mom. Why didn't you get up 15 minutes earlier? Because you didn't let me, all that stuff. You know how it goes. And as we're driving down, uh, going north on Quivira, which is our street, we both catch the, uh, out of our eye, we catch this couple walking in their pajamas with their perfectly groomed golden retriever and full cups of Starbucks. <laughs> hey, boy! <laughs> Go get it! Oh, you such a cute little gift, daddy, kid. <laughs> They're just having a grand time. Jan, I literally, we go like this. <laughs> and then we look at each other like this. We'd like to do that. Huh? Get to sleep in, stay in your PJs, get your cafe lotto, whatever auto thing, you know. I don't drink coffee, right? And throw that little thing with the dog and have the dog come smile. Here you go, you great master, you. And you know what? At that moment, we both thought, oh, this is hard. This is wearisome. And I opened my Bible to Malachi. How have you robbed me? You say it's wearisome. It's too much. That is not how the New Testament priest is to be. I leave you with that. We'll continue this tomorrow. Father, thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you that you speak to us rather than just hurt us away as you should do. Your mercy extends every day. In Jesus' name, amen.